Welcome to Built to Scale e-commerce show with Darius and Justin, your backstage pass to the eight and nine figure e-commerce world. Welcome to Built to Scale e-commerce show by Atkins Agency. And today we'll be interviewing Maxilovan Kisselwich, a co-founder at Bala, a company that produces minimalist weight bags. We have already done millions of dollars in sales without any paid advertising and successfully secured funding from Shark Tank. And in this episode, we'll be diving deep into learning about product development, branding, brand image, and branding strategy with Maxilovan himself. So hey, Maximilian, hope you're doing okay. Could you introduce a little bit more yourself? Hi, pleasure to be here. My name is Max Kislevitz. And yeah, I'm the co-founder of Bala, a sort of design-led fitness accessories company. And how did you get into e-commerce? Because nobody gets into e-commerce with accident. Yeah, no, it's a good question. I'd spent the first 10 plus years of my career working at ad agencies on behalf of global brands, sort of the likes of Netflix, Google, Coors Light, Budweiser, those sorts of brands. And I essentially felt after 10 years like a cog in a much bigger wheel and had an ambition to sort of develop and build my own brand. And that's sort of the early genesis of Bala. And how did you come up with the idea? Because you first understood, hey, I want to do something with my life, right? To do something bigger. But I bet you had like hundreds of ideas, right? How did you come up with the idea, identified this one as like the primary one? Yeah, no, it's interesting and a good question. For years, my friends and I would go to dinners and just spend hours riffing on ideas, drinking wine. And, and <laughs> by the end of the night, we were convinced that we'd have two to three ideas worth pursuing, but wake up the next morning having like mostly forgotten about them. And so hundreds, if not thousands of ideas ultimately sort of were in the mix, but never really took the steps to pursue them until my then girlfriend and I were traveling and we went to a yoga class in Southeast Asia. I think it was Indonesia. And afterward felt like the class wasn't as sort of strenuous as we'd hoped it'd be. We wanted to burn off some stress. And it led to a conversation about sort of the rise of boutique class-based fitness and people's fundamental inability to control that intensity of that workout. Like you may get off work at 6 p.m. You can only attend sort of the entry-level class. And if you're more advanced than that, you're sort of left unsatisfied as we were. So we were kind of kicking that idea around and wrist and ankle weights came up, which were sort of ubiquitous in the 80s and were kind of synonymous with that shoulder pads, neon, 80s aerobics aesthetic. And we said, what really happened to those? Because there was a functional component there and they were literally everywhere. What if we were to bring them back for sort of a more contemporary design savvy audience? So that was sort of the early idea for Bala Bengals. And now some two and a half, three years later, we're focusing on like bringing that sort of design sensibility to a range of fitness accessories. But it was really the reinvention and reintroduction of wrist and ankle weights that kind of put us on the map. Okay. And how long did you take to go from like this initial spark to actually like finalize the idea and actually taking action? Yeah, I think we were in a unique position because we were traveling. We had a lot of time on our hands. So the process for all of Bala's development has been really iterative. We've not focused on taking big, huge steps as much as we've just wanted to take steps at all. The smallest of steps still count, especially over time. So we started talking about this idea and then quickly started sketching it out and sketched out 10 different versions of what this thing could look like. 
and then had those sketches rendered in 3D and then ultimately prototyped and iterated on that prototype quite a bit. So I would say from initial concept through prototype was probably four to six months. And then through sort of like production ready product was maybe a year after that. We weren't product development people. So there were a lot of sort of mysteries associated with that process. Now we develop products in probably six months from concept through launch. Gosh, and did you calculate like initial demands somehow before, you know, investing with Strive to creating the product or did you get, hey, let's do it while I'm having a drive? Yeah, it's funny because I think that's why all the other ideas died is because it's hard to sort of like invest your time and your money in an idea that you don't yet have sort of like market validation for. And in the case of Bala Bengals, the product is made of really high quality materials in steel and silicone. They're just fundamentally expensive. So the product is expensive to make. The factory MOQs were high relative to the cost of the product. So the initial production run was going to be 40 plus thousand dollars that we didn't have. And so we ultimately decided to launch a Kickstarter campaign to kind of at once test the product market fit but also raise the initial capital. And I think this wasn't a runaway success at first. There are those Kickstarter ideas that do tremendously well on Kickstarter and then don't really well in the real world. And they'll raise millions on a modest goal. In our case, we, I think, raised $50,000 against our $40,000 goal, which was still a success and allowed us to launch the product. I see. So like basically Kickstarter was like a huge moving part. Uh, would you attribute some sort of marketing strategies that you did for the success in Kickstarter? Or did you just go in there and you know made it happen? Yeah, I think we were naive to sort of the realities of Kickstarter. At its conception, Kickstarter was a platform for folks with back-of-the-napkin ideas to go on and raise initial capital. And it wasn't that the napkin itself had to be rendered yeah. and then it changed <laughs> yeah and i think with smaller design studios gravitating to the platform like the level of the campaign kind of threshold was raised considerably higher and there were marketing campaigns associated with driving folks to your kickstarter page the same way yeah. you yeah. sort of run the customer acquisition costs on your site you're thinking through how that might ultimately grow your donation count. So ours was the naive approach. We basically put it on there and hoped it would do well. We told all our friends yeah. about it. We reached out to some sort of smaller level press and we just chipped away at it. It wasn't as if we'd ever made the front page of Kickstarter, which is a strategy to yeah. <laughs> get a lot of visibility out of the yeah. gate. So yeah, we sort of squeaked by in raising the money, but it was all that we needed to get going. Gotcha. And how was like production afterwards? Because when I'm talking with different people here in interviews, I'm always hearing the tough part is actually getting the product delivered and made in good way, high quality, you know, just as you promised after the Kickstarter ends. So wh- yeah. how was this experience for you? It was a kind of convoluted one. I think we, having come from advertising, which is fundamentally like a creative discipline where, you know, yeah. the first version of something is slightly worse than the second then the third and so on and so forth. So we understood that the first prototype we received wasn't going to be mind-blowing, but I think we probably went through 10 to 12 different prototypes to get it right, which might be surprising for such a relatively simple product like ours. It's a silicone overmold over sort of like a recycled steel bar bound to a 
piece of athletic elastic, but there was like a lot of complexity in getting to something really simple. You have to kind of force yourself to edit the things that aren't absolutely necessary. And so, yeah, it was a tough process. This wasn't like business as usual for us. We felt like we had 50,000 dollars that reflected people's trust that we would get it right. And so it was kind of like a high pressure thing in production. It gets easier when you start to understand that it's never going to be perfect out of the gate. But yeah, we definitely found it to be a challenging process. Yeah, because it kind of matches pretty much what I'm hearing all the time because manufacturing is hard. Plus, when you have to do a huge batch of products first time, it just stacks up because stress, delivery, timeframes, and deadlines, we just eat up into you and usually causes quite a bit of stress, actually. So. Totally. And the other thing worth mentioning is particularly in the case of like community-based like crowd fundraising platforms, like people do have an expectation that you're going to deliver on time because it's not technically a donation. They basically like pre-bought the product. It's a pre-sale, right? So once you start missing deadlines, people get frustrated about it. And understandably so, I would feel the same way. But without understanding sort of the challenges associated with getting a product made, it's difficult to understand why there are these massive delays. And each time we would give notes for a sample, it would take three to four weeks to turn those notes around into like a better version. And like I said, we went through that maybe 10 to 12 times. So it all adds up. Cool. Let's talk about branding because I know you have amazing brand, even from visual perspective to actually developing a real brand and taking kind of different approach from what we usually recommend people to take. Where first we recommend people to take approach and focus on pay that, get some sales going and then focus on branding. But you completely nailed it other way around. So maybe, you know, let's talk. How did you overall describe your brand? Have you kind of done it in one sentence or two? Yeah, so probably not. I think... What we like to say is that we are a fashion brand in a fitness brand's body so that we deliberately sort of blur the lines between fashion and fitness. That this idea that you are well-dressed and go about your day and then you change your sort of entire aesthetic to then go to the gym, it's just a little bit of this like false delineation. It gets a little philosophical, but like it's sort of like needlessly separated. And so we thought if your fashion sense is one way that you might respond to fitness products that sort of occupied that space as well. So we'd made a like kind of deliberate decision early on in the brand's development to say every other fitness brand in the world sits in this Space that's all about intensity, repetition, results, sweat, full and utter sort of determination to get stronger, fitter, faster. Why don't we be a brand that's more about the design sensibility and sort of fashion-led orientation of the products that are also all of these things functionally, like the products that we make are effective, but there's like a playful element to them that if this sort of side of the equation is all about kind of intimidation, like you do sometimes <laughs> right go. Yeah. What does it look like when you try to sort of take the work out of workout and be more playful with it? So that's hmm. been sort of the connective thread for all of the sort of brand activity we've done over the years. 
Cool. And tell me, you know, how did you go about creating all this? Because there was certainly some process to figure out your like brand vision, mission, message, positioning, etc. Even brand look, right? Because this is very important thing, just having that brand look that people can connect with. Yeah, totally. No, it's funny. So we, having come from the branding and marketing space, we understood how strict sort of brand guidelines can be mm. in this prescriptive nature of any and every sort of consumer-facing asset. Everything has to be matching luggage. The banner ad needs to look exactly like the product packaging and so on and so forth to drive consistency in market. And in our case, like we knew we wanted to embrace this sort of anti-fitness fitness positioning. And so we kind of allowed ourselves some freedom to color outside the lines, if you will. And I think that rather than sort of building the brand and the design language at the outset and sort of like committing to it and being married to it from day one, we sort of embraced the process that was more exploratory. So we started doing things that we felt were cool and started honing the sort of sensibility from there. And it was only after probably a year and a half of like this kind of dialogue with our social community and retailers that we really grasped what the brand was. And it was then that we made brand guidelines that started mm. to drive some consistency. So the company's mission, its product roadmap, its brand was not something we'd sort of put in this beautifully designed, like well-articulated deck at the outset. It's something that we were only prepared to do once we realized what was going to be most successful and honestly, the company that we wanted to build. We needed yeah. to figure that out along the way. So it was more like kind of like testing approach first, seeing what's working, what are people reacting to, what you guys want to do yourselves. And you're after some time coming with this final version. Yeah, exactly. And what's funny is like our closest sort of competitors or analogous brands, like they're sort of grounded in a particular sport. So like Manduka or Lululemon, mm -hmm. Aloe, these are brands that have sort of like attached themselves to yoga. And you have those brands that have attached themselves to each and every sport. And we knew that we wanted to be sort of sports agnostic. And what that meant then was that there wasn't going to be a specific ability that's attached to that, where like hockey is one thing and basketball is another and so on and so forth. So in embracing this kind of like from a content perspective, Erica, who's my sister-in-law, runs all of our social. And that was like sort of the tip of the spear in developing the overall brand aesthetic. Like there is an eclectic sort of UGC feel because people are using the product really, really differently because it's not only an audience of yogis that are pursuing the same sort of ultimate goal. So I think ours is a broader sort of use case. And so too is sort of the brand we've built to reflect that. What I'm hearing a lot is just consistent messaging visuals, of course, like evolving it, but being consistent along the same guidelines. So how important do you think it was actually in your success? Because I know a lot of people kind of think that it's mumbo jumbo, that doesn't impact things too much. But how was it in your case? Yeah, I think like I know that our kind of genesis as a company is different than most in that we spent a lot of time sort of figuring it out and didn't have to be so strict with ourselves. We're a small sort of family-owned company. So we had the freedom and flexibility to do that. I would say that taking the time to understand what was really resonant and then being consistent with that thing 
was really powerful. So I would actually attribute a lot of our success to taking time in the early days to understand what folks fundamentally loved about Bala and then from there proliferating that message and yeah, being quite consistent with it. So I think like consistency doesn't mean that we don't allow ourselves sort of creative freedom to do the things we think are cool, but people that are fans of our brand sort of consistently say like there is something so unique about your content and brand that they absolutely love. Yeah. And when you're talking about it, it kind of resonates similar to what we did with the power agency. We kind of dropped a ball in there, seeing what people are actually liking. And we came up at, hey, people are actually liking and loving what we're not doing, just let's say Facebook ads. We're taking care and looking at e-commerce growth as a whole. And this is kind of what we built our agency to be around. It came from the feedback from customers to taking it in-house and developing whole strategy from positioning to how the agency is developing, etc. So yeah, like it's very similar to what you guys did. Yeah, no, there are tons of examples of brands that think they understand what consumers want and sort of try to force feed it. And those brands like don't ultimately succeed. We're here in Hollywood now and Quibi was a massive failure in trying to sort of reinvent streaming because it made sense conceptually, but not in reality. So I think there's a strength in listening to your customer and having some like hypotheses, but not writing things in stone before you ultimately understand what's going to be kind of resonant. Yeah, cool. So let's talk a little bit more about Shark Tank and PR because I think it's kind of very interesting topic because everybody I've seen business going into Shark Tank. Could you share a little bit of your experience going in there? Yeah, absolutely. So in the US, at least, like Shark Tank has become synonymous with entrepreneurship. And so inevitably, when you've started a company like we did, every friend and family member you have is going to tell you to go on Shark Tank. (laughs) The thing is, it's not that easy. I think this selection process is something around 40 to 50,000 applications for each season that ultimately get whittled down to however many folks are filmed, which I think is like 100. So it's harder than getting into Harvard by the numbers at least. (laughs) But yeah, we ultimately were selected for the show. We went into our filming and the process is like what you see on the show. You don't have any sort of informal interactions with the sharks. You're sort of waiting backstage until they tell you to go do your pitch. And then it is a rather terrifying negotiation with five immensely powerful and wealthy people. In our case, the sharks were really positive and responsive to the pitch. And though it got more technical than we'd imagine, you see sort of the edits for the show and they're asking about margins and base strategy and stuff like that. But when you're actually in the tank, the negotiation is quite a bit longer than what's ultimately shown they're getting really technical, whether it's customer acquisition costs, whether it's like financing vehicles, it's quite a bit more sophisticated than we'd anticipated. But ultimately, it was successful for us. We made a deal with Mark Cuban and Maria Sharapova. We did the due diligence for that deal. And they're our partners today. Awesome. So how do you feel you know, about your experience after a Shark Tank? Was it like positive, negative? What did you like the most out of it? Yeah, I think if you have the opportunity to go on Shark Tank, you absolutely should. I think for us, we ultimately walked away with an investment and partnership that are kind of invaluable. But then when you layer on sort of the media value of the show and the long tail of like kind of press and interest, we almost have like the Shark Tank badge 
on Bala at this point. There's just a, a bit of a Shark Tank effect, I think. Yeah. And so, yeah, we absolutely enjoyed it. I got to tell you, it was a ton of work to get on the show. And it was immensely stressful to pitch these sharks, as I mentioned. But it was also kind of an incredible once-in-a-lifetime experience. Yeah, so a huge bump up, essentially. And you mentioned, you know, Mark Cuban and Sharapova, right? We are both super amazing people. So how we have helped your business? What's incredible is that they're way more involved than you'd think they'd be, especially with Mark, who's invested on Shark Tank for, I think it's 11, 12 years now. There are a number of companies in his portfolio. And Maria, as a celebrity and one of the kind of winningest athletes of all time, has a pretty crazy schedule as well, I'd imagine. But no, they're both incredibly responsive to strategic questions we might have, whether it's e-com or retail related. We've met with the both of them on a fairly regular basis to just kind of hash out the particulars of the business. So I think maybe going into Shark Tank, we thought, hey, we'd get a capital investment, but it's really been the strategic contribution that's been sort of most meaningful for us. That could be a good tip for other people that if you can get strategic investment, it's awesome, right? Or at least you'll get a mentor. Because for me personally, sometimes mentors are a huge help. Because I'm not sure about you, but sometimes I tend to have like a lot of ideas and it's hard to identify the top picks for yourself. And sometimes even when I'm coaching other people, right? All that I'm doing is basically saying what not to do. <laughs> Instead of, you know, saying them what to do. It's more about from side, you're able to see things much more clearly than just being involved. Totally. I completely agree. And that dialogue with someone that is not necessarily, that has a vested interest in the company, so they're not going to give you irresponsible advice because it doesn't affect them but that is not necessarily in the trenches with you every day. It's just like an incredibly helpful perspective. So I think that beyond the check itself, like just having strategic advisors, if you will, is really helpful. And in general, I quite noticed you have quite a bit of like PR publications, et cetera. Is this related to Shark Tank or did you have like some sort of separate strategy to get in there? Yeah, I think for us, and I know that this is not, sort of universally the case. I think we stumbled on like a really powerful insight, this notion of like design-led fitness accessories that don't otherwise exist. I often say that we live in this world now where people are dressing up to go to the gym. The gyms themselves are incredibly well-designed and yet the products that you actually interact with at the gym aren't. And you can go to the most expensive gym in your city or the least expensive gym in your city. And you're sort of working out with the same equipment. So for us, PR, I think, has been reflective of just this kind of powerful product insight that's also reflected in our brand. And it's just been a bit of a domino effect. I think we'd had some press, quite a bit of press last year before our airing on Shark Tank. And it's now just kind of this domino effect where yeah, we're written about quite often. We were in a ton of gift guides this year. I think Vogue named us one of the 17 products that define 2020, which is incredible and something we never could have anticipated. So I think, yeah, press is certainly has become a part of our strategy. But I think our success with press and PR is like kind of grounded in just the product and brand yeah. insight. I see. So look, usually I like to close a podcast with one kind of personal question. (laughs) Because entrepreneurship is relatively hard, there are like quite a bit of ups and downs. So I always love to hear, you know, how people are managing through them. 
So could you tell me how you are dealing with stress and business ups, downs, swings, or however you call it? Yeah, it's funny. So I suppose there are a couple things. We have to remind ourselves that the most urgent thing isn't necessarily the most important, which has been kind of a difficult thing that we don't get right every day. But I think we can all kind of appreciate that phenomenon where you wake up to 50 emails. And so you start to sort of prioritize those emails as opposed to what you'd otherwise had planned for the day. And then I think the other thing is just kind of accepting this reality that things are going to go wrong. And actually, business is sort of a cycle of problem solving. I think people sort of understand that solving is part of the equation, but they don't always recognize that there's going to be a lot of problems. And so lately, we've just said, that's fine. Shit's going to go wrong and we're going to fix it. (laughs) So yeah, kind of like answers. It's pretty good because I also had to go through this transition at one point. And once you let it go, it's so much smoother. Once you stop worrying about all the spoils, details, and you understand it, as long as you can get it like 95% perfect, it's okay. Yeah. Yeah, totally. No, there's that. What's the quote? Perfect is the enemy of good. Like yeah. if you, <laughs> you're trying to get it exactly right, you're probably wasting time and energy where you could be sort of building the brand and business. So I totally get that. Yeah. And tell me where people could find more about you if they would well love to connect with you personally or go to your Bala Bangle store to buy something. Yeah, so shopbala.com is our e-com site. And there's quite a bit about sort of the brand and the range of products there. I'm on LinkedIn and folks can feel free to hit me up there. Max Kislevitz. Cool. So Maximilian, super thankful for your time here. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, It was a pleasure to be here. Enjoying this podcast? Consider subscribing and sharing it with your friends. This helps us to grow and create more amazing content like this for you.